I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. You know, before we even get into this, I just want to say that it's been a long ass time since we've talked about a book. <laughs> a really long time. I don't remember how books work anymore. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. After an unprecedented number of minisodes and breaks, we are at last bringing you part one of our discussion of the sixth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We're high on that unlimited New Year potential and ready to make 2016 the year of the witch. Hey, Hannah, you know what my New Year's resolution is? It's to be tidier. Let's start off on the right note with the sorting chat. (laughs) Get it? Like being tidy and sorting? Yeah, I do get it because I wrote the joke. Um, you know what? We're going to start off with a disagreement because you claimed before we started recording that this book stood out to you as being remarkably funny. Oh, yeah. Um, And I so far am like, cool, which part of it is funny to you? Because so far it seems pretty dark. There's been, like, a number of murders. Uh, High-profile murders. High-profile murders. You know, an increased focus on the penal system, the flashbacks into Voldemort's childhood, which are just, like, bleak as shit. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not, not... It's not whimsical. No, it's not. It's not whimsical. And I think that the bleakness and intensity of sadness... I think that those things are why the comic relief is so important. Are you suggesting that humor functions as a sort of pressure valve in high stress situations? 
I mean, it does for me. I don't know about you guys, but it's like definitely not a human human function. It's like literally <laughs> the only thing that has kept the Jews alive is <laughs> our spectacular sense of humor. Often what I do when I prepare for our book episodes is I make lists. I I have a, a little sticky note where I have some kind of theme, like, for example, comic relief. And then I just list all of the pages where it appears. And this is one of the only times that I have ever found that to be useful. Because now in our conversation, I can say, well, comic relief appears at least on pages 90, 96, 171, and 211. Only four funny things in like 300 pages. Yeah, but they're like significantly funny. That's like one funny thing for every 75 pages. On the top of my head, I can only think of one funny thing that happened. What is it? It's the scene where Ron is at the... um, what is his brother's shop name? Weasley Wizard Weas the Weasley Wizarding Weezes? Weasley's Wizard Weezes. Thank you. And uh he comes up with this armful of stuff and they're just like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's gonna cost you a lot of money. I found that I found that really charming. And you know what? That's not even one of the ones that I had listed what? here. It is. It's so funny. It's not even on my list. Okay. So I'll give you an example. So the first example I wrote at the top of the page, boy who narrated comic relief. Ha ha ha. And so... <laughs> You're a nerd. It's when... <laughs> so they're at the burrow, and it's the morning that Harry wakes up, and everybody has just discovered that he's there. And so Ron and Hermione are in Harry's room, and then Ginny joins them. And Ginny's really pissed, and she's like, oh, it's her. And Hermione's like, oh, what's she done now? And then Hermione says something like, oh, she's so full of herself. And it says, Harry was astonished to hear Hermione talking about Mrs. Weasley like this and could not blame Ron for saying angrily, can't you two lay off her for five seconds? And then Ginny says, oh, that's right. Defend her. We all know you can't get enough of her. And then Harry thinks this seemed an odd comment to make about Ron's mother. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. That's funny. funny. That's That's a good joke. So that's one. And then another one occurs six pages later. Oh, okay. This one's really good. This one's this one's slapstick. So now we have an instance of slapstick humor. It's when Harry is explaining to Ron and Hermione uh, the prophecy, and it's really serious because it's about the fact that Harry might die. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're just staring at each other in silence, and there's a loud bang because the telescope that Hermione's holding has oh. punched her in the eye. Which does tie into the theme that we're going to talk about later on, which is the emphasis on violence against women in this book. <laughs> which is so funny, right? It's the funniest. Worst. Uh, so then there's that. And then I've got on page 171. So what's this one? There are just so many funny ones. It's a surprise to me what it is that I've got here. Oh, this one's really good. <laughs> I, so this be the entire episode? <laughs> the entire episode is just going to be me going through the book being like, oh, this one's funny too. Listen to this. Okay, so this is their first defense against the dark arts class with Snape as the professor. And uh, Snape oh, is about shit. to... Is this Harry's sassy? Yeah, this is Harry being sassy, right? This. Okay, so, so this is when Harry uses a verbal spell to protect himself when Snape is <laughs> trying to, like, assault him in class or whatever. And then Snape is really pissed because he got knocked over into a desk and he says, do you remember me telling you we were practicing nonverbal spells, Potter? And then Harry says, yes. And then Snape says, yes, sir. And then Harry says, there's no need to call me sir, professor. 
There's another moment later on where Harry, like, loses control of his internal sensor. He's really coming out as a character who thinks that he is very funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. I love Harry as a smartass. He's my favorite Harry. You just love a smartass. Fuck, I love a smartass so much. Oh, my God. Okay, last one. Last one. Page 211. There are so many more, but this is the last one that I'm going to talk about. This is just narrative humor, okay? Okay. So what's happening is the book is telling us all of the people who are there to try out for the the Gryffindor Quidditch team, and it's just listing all the different groups of people. So it's like the first group was a bunch of first years who can't fly. The second group is 10 of the silliest girls Harry had ever encountered. The third group had a pile-up halfway around the pitch. Most of the fourth group had come without broomsticks. The fifth group were Hufflepuffs. <laughs> and then he says, is anybody else not a Gryffindor? And then like another big group of people all like reluctantly slink off the field. <laughs> See, it's a really funny book. Yeah. I totally agree that it's like really, really intense and there's a lot of misery. And there's all of these tiny moments peppered throughout the book that are literally laugh at loud funny. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense as the series gets darker, mm-hmm. that you need to build in these sort of moments of levity and moments of, of humor in order to sort of off balance that. Yeah. All right. I'm convinced. I'm convinced this is a funny book. Okay. Should we move on? Yep. Great. My New Year's resolution is to be more attendant to the materiality of print. So let's head over to Flourish and Blots, our segment about that thing I just said. Okay, so I would like to start off by talking about marginalia. Mm -hmm. Um, I just finished teaching a book history course, and we talked about marginalia a lot. And it seemed to be a thing that particularly got students stoked, right? This idea of the way that um, previous readers' engagements with texts can get physically manifested in the text itself, the way that the mass-produced object becomes this deeply intimate, personal, unique object through your ability to interact with it, the way that marginalia represents two different media systems interacting with each other, right? Because we tend to have this idea that when a new medium comes into dominance, the old ones will die out, Mm -hmm. which book historians will tell you is never true. They just enter into a new relationship with each other, right? So Mm -hmm. handwriting and print have this new relationship to each other. And then there was this piece going around, I can't remember where it was published, but it was making the rounds on like book history nerd Twitter, which is my Twitter, about why it is that Marginalia is particularly having a moment right now and arguing that it is because of the digital shift, Mm -hmm. that the more digital we go, the more fascinated we are with the materiality of print. But this is, this book in particular, um, is a book that is super interested in bookishness Mm -hmm. in the materiality of the printed object and really interested in the way that you enter into a conversation with a text by imprinting your personal responses to it Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i'm referring of course to the copy of the potions textbook that harry gets his hands on that's you know heavily inscribed by the half-blood prince but also to the way that that then becomes a way for harry into the kinds of texts that have otherwise been kind of forbidding for him, Mm -hmm. right? So marginalia becomes a way of him understanding that you can be 
in dialogue with texts. You don't have to just take them at face value, right? And sort of Hermione becomes this foil who's like, no, texts mean what they mean. Like, there is one externally verifiable reading of this book, mm-hmm. and it is this thing. Like, Hermione would totally be a new critic. But Harry's sort of finding this other way through his relationship with the book. Yeah. You know what I find so particularly interesting about that, and and especially about Hermione's resistance to the half-blood prince's marginalia as in any way legitimate contributions to these potions instructions um, is the fact that she has already learned in previous books that the authority of print is not to be trusted Mm -hmm. right like that's already a lesson that she's learned through things like the ministry appointed textbook that we got in book five Mm -hmm. Rita Skeeter in book four who is willing to print lies about Harry all of the daily prophet that prints lies in book five her realization that Hogwarts a history leaves out the entire story of the house elves and Mm -hmm. thus is a lie yeah so Hermione already knows that books can't in and of themselves be held as 100% reliable. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something about annotations, handwritten notes. She actually chastises Harry for using a handwritten spell. And both Harry and Ron are like, what does it matter that's handwritten? That is somehow something different. So Mm -hmm. even though she's willing to question the authority of texts themselves, she's not yet willing to trust annotations and marginalia over the authority of the text, which I think is so fascinating. And this also sort of brings us back to a conversation we had way back in the day with Andrea about the way that the Wizarding World is situated in terms of she was arguing it's sort of in the middle of a transition from feudalism to a capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And if we think about overlapping those against systems of communication, manuscript culture versus print culture, mm-hmm. right, print has this authority associated with it, right? Because in print, once something, you know, this is the sort of super reductive Marshall McLuhan argument about print is that once something is put down in print, it's the same in every incarnation, right? So print Mm -hmm. locks stuff down and standardizes it. Mm -hmm. Whereas manuscript culture has this malleability and this ephemerality to it that Mm -hmm. every version is different. And that has an excitement and a danger, right? Mm -hmm. That print is not as powerful because it isn't it wasn't inscribed by the hand of the writer. Mm-hmm. And we already got a sense of the exciting, seductive danger of handwriting in book two, mm-hmm. right? With the diary, which is explicitly referenced in this book, because yeah. Ginny's like, what the fuck are you doing? We've learned books are bad news. <laughs> um Right. And it's again, it's the handwriting here that makes this book also an exciting, charged, dangerous object. Mm-hmm. Right? Like print doesn't have the power to be exciting and dangerous in that way. Print is associated with systems and power Mm -hmm. and official narratives and government sanctions. It's Mm -hmm. handwriting that has this sort of dangerous edge to it. There are just so many things that I want to say about this because I am similarly... Because we're both print culture scholars, so we're like super, (laughs) super excited about this. Like I'm realizing right now that we didn't even start the segment off by being like, we're not actually going to talk about our own relationship with the books which is what we normally do in this segment. We just like launched right into being like, here's what's going on with print in this book. And it is so exciting. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I bought this book at Chapters. 
Uh, I bought the copy that I'm reading right now before I went uh, to Europe this summer so that I could have a, or actually it was it was uh, our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Who was reading this particular copy while we were gone. It is now mine and it is now full of notes because I wrote all over Great. as I read it yeah, at the end. Okay. So I just want to give you a list of things that I think are exciting about like text and print culture and can't wait and stuff I in the book more wine. i know so the library has a restricted section and the books in the restricted section are typically books that are much more dangerous and deal mostly with or at least we've been told that they deal mostly with dark magic and so i'm pondering if those are handwritten books they're like really old and dusty yeah. so i'm i'm just curious about whether or not they're handwritten because they're restricted i wonder if their restrictedness is at all associated with their handwrittenness there's no way to like there's no way to actually prove this either way but it's just a question worth pondering and then i'm also thinking about the ministry pamphlets that get handed out at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book particularly the blown up poster versions of the ministry pamphlets that line Diagon Alley, which the Weasley twins then satirize with the exact same color and lettering the book tells us, but it's all about, you know, poo, the constipation sensation that's gripping the nation. You have memorized. Of course I have it memorized. It's so funny. <laughs> we also have like a will and we get letters. Like we get a lot of, we get a lot of text and a lot of print objects and a lot of ephemera in all of the books. Yeah. But this is the one where they all seem to kind of pile up. So we've got a few different sort of categories of print happening at the same time, right? So we've got this sort of official pamphlets that are coming, being handed down by the ministry, and we can see the ways that certain forms of print culture operate sort of like speech acts, mm -hmm. in that through the mere act of printing out instructions, the ministry thus has this sort of coercive impact mm -hmm. on people's lives, which we see in the Weasleys' ridiculous parroting that's parroting like the bird of this procedure of you know, doing what the ministry has told them to, um, you know, and then we've got these potentially subversive handwritten texts. And then we've got um, the ephemeral quotidian mm -hmm. print texts that we see the characters um, interacting with on a daily basis. Uh, and those are really interesting because as Marcel pointed out, while they are treated as asides, the book actually codes characters really clearly according to their consumption of ephemeral print material mm -hmm. right yeah. so we've got luna who is never seen without her copy of the quibbler we've got hermione as seemingly the only student at hogwarts who has a subscription to the daily prophet and then as marcel noticed a scene with crab reading a comic book mm -hmm. yeah this is something that i've missed every single time that i've read this book until just recently when i reread it in anticipation of recording this podcast it's just slipped in there. Mm -hmm. There's no argument that Crab is reading something that is stupid. It's all implicit, right? So the fact that Crab yeah. is reading a comic is in and of itself supposed to indicate to us the type of reading that he does. And because we know that Crab is dumb, we are encouraged to think that reading comic books is dumb. Which it isn't. It's definitely not. Comic books are super interesting. Yeah. We should do a whole podcast about how cool comic books are. Oh my god. Guys, I love comic books so much. I didn't even get into comic books until I was in my late 20s. And I feel like I super missed out, like, my so whole good. youth. 
Anyway. anyway. Okay, yeah. So that's not what we're talking about right now. I mean, to come to circle back to the fact that usually in this segment, we talk about our own interactions with the text. I mean, for one thing, we're running out of stories about when we got these books. But for another thing, I think it's really interesting how the book series increasingly emphasizes its awareness of itself as a book mm -hmm. um, in a way that mirrors the increasing sophistication of the narrative itself. Mm -hmm. So as we get into these later books, there's more and more emphasis on thinking about what a book is mm -hmm. and what kind of authority a book has and on modeling how you are supposed to read, mm -hmm. right? You know, how you're supposed to engage with a text, what's being modeled for us in this book really is a sort of opening up of the possibilities for individual engagement with a text, right? I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of freedom being modeled here in terms of how you mm -hmm. read. And that's really interesting to me sort of in relation to, for example, Rowling's most recent tweet about being super down with a Black Hermione, mm -hmm. right? That she she has sort of always embraced fan engagements with her texts, mm -hmm. which mirrors the way that we see print working in this book. Don't edit any of those pauses out. Guess what? I have another resolution. It's to continue to be a better close reader than you, Hannah. Let me show you what I mean in The Boy Who Narrated, our discussion of narrative perspective. All right, so we need to start off by talking about the opening two chapters, mm -hmm. right? Because we've had other books that have opened with some third-person omniscient narration, mm -hmm. but this is a substantially longer section, and it's two different moments, mm -hmm. two totally different scenes. And we also move from, like, the first one's not third-person omniscient, it's third-person third person limited perspective and it's focalized through the prime minister mm -hmm. and then we move into what looks to me like a third person omniscient mm -hmm. though it, it seems to be either limited omniscience or the narrator just doesn't want to tell us a lot so we've got the scene with the prime minister and that's interesting because it gives us a different unreliable narrator mm -hmm. um, and there's a particular pleasure for us as the readers who know a lot about this world to now get to read an update about what's happening in the wizarding world as told from the perspective of somebody on the outside. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting way to bring us back into what's been going on mm -hmm. um, is through the particular pleasures of knowing more than the narrator. But then it moves from there into the scene with um, Bellatrix and Narcissa going to visit Snape. And that scene is almost doing the opposite because it's not focalized through any particular character. Um, but what we know retroactively as readers is that that whole chapter is deliberately misleading you as a reader. Mm -hmm. It's actually specifically using its seemingly omniscient narrative perspective to withhold information. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And to manipulate you into believing things about Snape that are not true. So there's a lot of really interesting narrative play happening in those opening two chapters. Mm -hmm. This book, more than any other, calls into question what side Snape is on. It seems as though Malfoy's role is the one that's the like significant subplot. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's really, once it's you really get to the end, Snape. you realize that it is all about Snape yeah. all along. 
I think that's all I want to say about it for now. And we'll talk about it more in detail later, obviously. But that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that the book gives us this chapter that is a slightly more neutral representation of Snape that still invites us to misread him, but in a much less heavy-handedly biased way Mm -hmm. than Harry does, right? Because we only see Snape through Harry's eyes. There's no space at all for resistant readings or for questioning what's going on with him, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas this chapter is so ambiguous that it puts a question mark over him no matter how much Harry dislikes him. Mm -hmm. And I found there was this one particular moment that really stood out for me, which is every single time Harry describes Snape, he emphasizes the greasiness of Snape's hair. Mm -hmm. And in this one description that we get of Snape, not from Harry's perspective, his hair is not greasy. Mm -hmm. It's certainly like it describes him having long black hair that hangs in curtains around his face. It describes his face as being sallow, Mm -hmm. but that's it, right? There's no other emphasis on Snape's ugliness or greasiness or his hooked nose. So a lot of the ways in which Snape is usually coded as being, you know, unattractive to Harry disappears, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just another one of those valuable spaces for us as readers to open up the distance between reality and Harry's perception. Mm -hmm. Then if we're thinking about why it is that Harry is reading Snape as greasy, that then makes me want to ask, what are the cultural implications of greasiness, Mm -hmm. right? Much like the way that we agreed that Harry's emphasis on the fatness of the Dursleys Mm -hmm. betrays a particular kind of cultural bias on Harry's part about what fatness means, obviously greasiness means something Mm -hmm. to Harry, right? And what you suggested is that what greasiness reads as, from Harry's perspective, is class, Mm -hmm. is a class critique, right? That that Snape is dirty. Yeah, because although Bellatrix and Narcissa don't note Snape's greasy hair, or rather the narrator doesn't note Snape's greasy hair, what Bellatrix describes when they are approaching his home is how poor it is. And there's this moment where she says he lives in this muggle dunghill. And then she says to Narcissa, we must be the first of our kind to set foot here. And every time that I've read this chapter before this particular reading, I've assumed that she meant wizards until, yeah, which is the natural assumption to make, right? But then it occurred to me this time that like, well, no, of course she doesn't mean wizards because Snape lives there. So she wouldn't she wouldn't assume that they're the first wizards to show up at a place where a wizard lives. Yeah. So what she obviously means is upper class or aristocratic um, yeah. old money, witches yeah. and wizards. So I think that there's something happening there where Bellatrix's recognition of Snape's poverty is mirroring or replacing the greasiness that Harry usually Mm -hmm. identifies. Because like, Harry grew up poor circumstantially, but he didn't grow up in poverty, right? Yeah, no, he grew up in a very comfortably middle class context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a question that I just want to sort of put a pin in, and then we'll forget about it. And then Sylvie will tweet us about it. But it's at this point, does Bellatrix know that Snape is not pureblood. I can't remember what the revelation is about whether or not Snape is hiding his identity mm. at the end of this book, because that would account in part for her distrust of him, mm-hmm. is if she knows that he's not a pureblood wizard. So we've been talking so far 
just about those opening two chapters. So then we move into Harry's perspective, Mm -hmm. right? We get back inside Harry's head and it's, let's find out how the major events of the last book have affected him. Mm -hmm. And so far, it seems like not particularly. That is to say, he does not appear to be learning any of the important lessons from the last book. The one that really stood out to me is that in the last book, Dumbledore says to him, where Sirius went wrong is through his total disrespect for creature. Not taking him seriously as an individual, like mm-hmm. as a as a fully existing subject who might have opinions and motivations and ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is a basic sort of racism on Sirius's part. Mm-hmm. And then we see Harry at the beginning of this book just thoughtlessly reproducing exactly those kinds of bigotry that we saw on Sirius's part, right? That he doesn't question his inheritance of creature, that he wants to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. And Dumbledore has to point out, like, you don't want him falling in the hands of other people. Yeah, but Harry just doesn't seem to have learned that particular lesson at all. Yeah, and we similarly see Harry bullheadedly charging ahead with his assumption that he has figured out what's going on with Draco in the same way that we saw him bullheadedly charging ahead that he knows what's going on at the Ministry of Magic with Sirius, right? So the lesson of how he has to question his assumptions and not just take for granted that he knows best is not one that he learns, right? Like he just charges ahead, believing that he knows that Draco is a Death Eater and no one who questions that assumption could possibly realize what's going on. And he is really frustrated that at his mention of this to McGonagall, that she doesn't jump into action. And then he brings it up again with Dumbledore and Dumbledore's like, yo, I've heard this. Chill, I've got this. He still harbors this belief that he knows better than all of the incredibly clever and powerful wizards who are adults around him we're gonna have to ask in the next episode what it means that spoiler alert spoiler alert commence obliviate in five four three two one Whereas in the fifth book, he was entirely wrong and made a really vital error. In the sixth book, he's right. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to think that through at a later date. For now, I want to talk a little bit about Jenny Weasley. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to preamble this by saying that I did like the tiniest little bit of research, but not on purpose. I just like read something that some (laughs) some of our Twitter followers sent us. Stop it. And what I was reading was like the top 10 Harry Potter fan theories. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love Bananas Harry Potter fan theories. Big fan of them. My personal like emotional favorite is that uh, Draco Malfoy is a werewolf in this book. Have you read this one? I only know of it through the tweet where Rowling was like, ha, no. I don't care what Rowling says. I think that that's a really solid fan theory. But on that same whatever BuzzFeed listicle, whatever it was, apparently one of the major fan theories is that Ginny in this book slips Harry a love potion, which accounts for Harry's radical reversal from having no particular romantic interest in Ginny to being obsessed with her. And Marcel and I encountered for the first time when we were at Fan Expo this summer what is apparently a quite widespread dislike for Ginny in the Harry Potter fan community. 
And so I did a little looking into that. And it seems to come from this idea that sort of she goes from being a totally unremarkable background character to being this like, perfect, can't do wrong anything, beautiful, talented, smart, amazing character overnight. Mm -hmm. And that that's really unsatisfying as a reader. And so I'm going to officially, no matter how many furs I ruffle, is that how that that phrase goes? I believe that you ruffle furs. Yeah. That is true. No, I think it might be feathers. No matter how many furs I ruffle, I am going to officially declare that all of those perspectives are based in really shitty reading. Oh, yeah. You're all reading wrong. Yeah. If you think that Ginny slips Harry a love potion and that that is why she suddenly becomes important, you've done a really poor job at reading how love potions work. You've also failed to recognize that the books are told from Harry's perspective, which like that's okay because so did I until we started this podcast. So okay, I'm going to I'm going to give you that. But by this point you should know better because we've told you that they're from Harry's perspective. And so if you've gotten to this point and you're like, "Why is Ginny all of a sudden super important?" Uh it's because Harry suddenly notices her. Like that's that's why. I really love the imagined reader we are currently berating. <laughs> I don't know who it is that we're like, "You did a bad job." listeners devoted listeners who we love bad job there's a couple of pieces of textual evidence you know marcel pointed out the moment when they're getting on the uh, hogwarts express and harry's like oh jenny let's go get a car together and jenny's like yeah i don't hang out with you at school i'm gonna go hang out with my boyfriend bye and harry has this sort of moment of like oh, I forgot, right? And so you see it registered quite clearly right from the beginning of this book that something has shifted in their relationship. Um, And then there's a really key moment when Harry is uh, his first day of potions class with uh, Slughorn. There's a love potion on the table and everybody smells something different. And we know that Hermione smells wrong. (laughs) right because she refuses to say the third thing that she smells right it's like books and freshly cut grass and ron's sweaty armpits ron's ron's sweaty armpits hot but harry smells you know like whatever like brooms and i guess like uh, an owl (laughs) you smell hedwig he smells hedwig's feathers brooms and then this floral smell that he can't quite place his finger on, but that he can associate with that the burrow. He, that he associates with the burrow, right? Which later on in the book is explicitly linked to Jenny, right? Mm-hmm. But so the book is telling us before Harry himself has realized it mm-hmm. that Harry has fallen for Jenny. Yeah, and that like that's not an impossible shift in somebody's perspective on some like right. You could know some like she's just turned fifteen. Right? She's one year younger. Yeah. So they're 16. So she's just turned 15. So she's just... You are 15 going on 16. I know that that's not actually the ages in the song, but I just want to add a super cut of... I am 16 going going on 17. 17. I know that I'm naive. (laughs) That's Harry. That's Harry's line. Yeah, fellows he meet may tell him he's sweet, and willingly he believes. Oh, Harry. Oh, chosen one. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that, the sort of what's going on with Ginny, I think, just within the world of the text itself, it's another really good example of 
the ways in which the narrative perspective is limited through Harry's eyes. But it's also really interesting to see how a sort of misreading of that narrative perspective has um, sort of spider webbed out into the larger fan community to turn into this profound dislike for Ginny as a character, Mm -hmm. which I think is really unfounded um, because what happens, like Ginny becomes perfect because Harry falls in love with her and Harry is telling the story. And so when he's in love with her, she's perfect. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is that Harry reads her as perfect, but you can resist that reading when you're going through the novel, right? Like Mm -hmm. there are moments where Ginny is a bit, ridiculous like she says and does things that are very questionable and downright offensive in some at some points but like she's not objectively perfect also this whole like this character suddenly comes out of nowhere and becomes super important like why is it only Ginny who's attacked with that like who the fuck is Cormac McLagan and why is it even remotely possible that he is a year ahead of our main three characters and they've literally never heard of him before that doesn't make any sense and apparently he like really ties a lot of his sense of self to quidditch and yet has never played quidditch no not ever and and the book tries to solve that problem with harry being like why didn't you try it last year And he's like oh i was in the hospital wing oh were you in the hospital wing only last year or were you in the hospital wing all of the previous years at every single quidditch tryout also you know who would have noticed you in the hospital wing are three protagonists who constantly constantly <laughs> hang out in that fucking hospital wing. <laughs> they would have seen you. Like, have you never been to the common room? It doesn't... No, this is... No, no. no. So, like, where's the fan theory about Cormac McLagan slipping Harry a love potion? That's what I want to know. Some fan theories about Cormac McLagan. Hey, Marcel. I also have another resolution and it's probably the best one yet 2016 is going to be the year of being super awesome at pedagogy but i could use some advice from some quality teachers so let's head to potions class and talk about pedagogy at hogwarts because man this book is just modeling high quality pedagogy all over the place oh all over Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I'd like to start this off by mentioning, for one thing, we have just consistently across this podcast not done a great job of talking about the Weasley twins enough, right? which is surprising because we love them. They're our favorite. And what I find really particularly exciting is that this is the book after their triumphant departure at the end of book Mm. five. Book six is the book where we really see them coming into their own. Mm -hmm. And I find that moment where Hermione's looking at one of their products and saying, like, this is really sophisticated magic. Mm-hmm. And we see her recognizing something that through her we also recognize as readers, which is that 
um, the Weasley twins are incredibly competent wizards Mm -hmm. who were fundamentally unserved by a standard education system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, earlier on in the same book, Mrs. Weasley talks about how Ron got more owls than Fred and George got together. Yeah. Right? Like, you can't thrive in the wizarding world if you don't pass through the standard education system. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Weasleys obviously could not succeed within those structures and have gone off and made this path for themselves. It's really interesting to me that this book series that is in so many ways a sort of tribute to a school, Mm -hmm. right? Like the protagonist of Harry Potter is Hogwarts. And yet the narrative itself introduces the failings of that school system, Mm -hmm. right? It very clearly shows us that, like, we love Hogwarts. Hogwarts is amazing. Hogwarts has failed some of its best students. Totally, yeah. And that is really interesting to me, the way that it allows us that point of resistance to what should be the thing that's being most celebrated. Mm -hmm. How about... Next, we talk about this line, which both Marcel and I just underlined and we're like, beep. Um, that's a noise that we make when we underline things. Beep, beep. This is Harry talking about how he's about to try the nonverbal spell that he found written by the Half-Blood Prince in his potions book. And he's thinking, I haven't had any success with nonverbal spells in defense against the dark arts. But, and I quote, the prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. So that's obviously irony, which we love. But it also, I think, invites some questions about what is going so entirely wrong between Snape as a teacher and Harry as a student, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that it invites us to ask if Snape is actually a bad teacher mm-hmm. or if Snape is just a bad teacher to Harry, right? Because yeah. is, is it possible that Snape is actually super good at teaching and we just never find out because he can't teach Harry? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's entirely plausible because he's obviously an extremely competent potions master. Mm-hmm. There's also the comment that um, Hermione makes when they leave their first defense against the dark arts class where Harry is really livid about the way that Snape talks about the dark arts and Hermione is like uh he sounds exactly like you oh (laughs) I wonder if maybe in the classroom Harry is the subject of Snape's derision but privately with a textbook the textbook is the subject of Snape's derision right and so Harry is able to read this shitty textbook and identify with the person who's like, oh, this textbook sucks. This is the better way to do it. And he's like, yeah, this textbook does suck. Look at even Hermione can't make the potion when she's following the rules of this textbook. You're totally right, Marginalia, because he's not the subject of the derision. Which suggests that ties back into what you were just saying about Hermione pointing out to Harry the similarities between them, Mm -hmm. um, which then in turn invites us to read Harry and Snape as comparable characters, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting when you think back to what Lupin said to Harry when Harry looked into the pensieve and saw Snape's memory of being harassed. Mm -hmm. And Lupin said, well, you know, it's just like teen hijinks, like you and Draco are just like that. And we're like, that's not what Draco and Harry are like at all. 
except if you flip the characters, except if Harry is the Snape figure Mm -hmm. and Draco is the James Potter figure. And all of a sudden that makes a lot of sense because Harry comes in like, yes, he comes in loaded with tons of privilege, but he's pretty badly treated by the rest of the school through a lot of the books. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this really ironic way in which Snape misrecognizes Harry and perpetuates the same kind of abuse Mm -hmm. that he experienced as a child that made him so bitter, which is in itself a commentary on the ways that systems of abuse perpetuate themselves. Oh yeah, for sure. In the Pensieve in book five, we get that scene of Snape's um, of Snape's abuse of childhood, right? Like, it's just a quick scene, yeah, yeah. but we do, we get a flash of it. And yeah. that is so similar to the type of experience that Harry has growing up at the Dursleys, except unlike Snape, who seems to us that his father was uh, abusive towards his mother, both of Harry's stepparents are abusive to him. Yeah. But we can't assume that Snape's father, who was abusive towards his mother, was not also abusive towards him. It's very likely that he was because yeah. that's how abuse yeah. works. Anyway, this is all very interesting. <laughs> so, oh my God, our opinions are fascinating. Let's move on. Haven't we all had a slughorn? Yes. Yeah. Academia is awash with slughorns. And when you are a part of the slug club, it is a the best. <laughs> I've been in a fair number of slug clubs, I gotta say. And I catch myself sometimes, you know, teaching classes where there'll be a handful of students who are your favorites. I mean, I love, like, I genuinely, I say this really, really genuinely, like, I love all of my students. I really do. And I think the ones who are really quiet often feel like probably their professors don't care about them as much because it's harder to engage in dynamic ways in person with really introverted students. Mm -hmm. But hey, introverted students, we're reading your really, really intelligent work and we know how engaged and how smart you are and we really value you in the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. But there's this way in which like the super extroverted, super outgoing, dynamic students just attract this particular attention to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually sometimes as a teacher – you actually have to really deliberately refuse that kind of system, right? Mm -hmm. Refuse to sort of create a slug club in your classroom. And so it's interesting to see the flip side of that, to see this teacher who is just really, really into the power that comes from teaching. I think one of the things that I found so interesting about Slughorn is the idea of Slughorn as a Slytherin because the book series up to this point has invited us to see Slytherins as power hungry leaders, right? Mm, Like we tend to think of the Slytherin house as the house that produces presidents and prime ministers and like the heads of corporations and stuff like that. We very rarely think of your your Christian grays. Sure. He's a total Slytherin though, right? I believe you. I've neither read nor seen the film. So I have no idea what you're saying. Are you just talking about Jamie Doran? Yeah. Are we just talking about the fall? So we're talking about the fall. Okay. Because to call his character in the fall a Slytherin is like the understatement of the century. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Anyway. um, So I really appreciated the acknowledgement that there are a lot of very influential, powerful people who aren't just out to like dominate everybody, 
but who like to be behind the scenes. That was a really important awakening for me in yeah. recognizing what a Slytherin is versus what Harry thinks a Slytherin is, yeah. right? Yeah. So Slughorn as a kind of spider who spins a big web of yeah. famous and important people is, yeah. you know, quite charming. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also, I find him so far the most convincing argument that, like, the Slytherins are not by necessity, like, this crazy white supremacist group. That mm -hmm. Slughorn, you know, he might be this sort of manipulative character, but he's not a sinister character. No, um, He's no. quite likable, and he's represented, like, you can tell, again, through the narrative that Harry kind of likes him, mm -hmm. right? Like, even the way that his fatness is described is sort of charming, right. rather than yeah. gross, right? right? There's Absolutely. this line where he's he walks through the doorway preceded by his stomach, yeah. which I actually just find really, really, really cute. Well, Slughorn is described as a walrus rather than yeah. a pig. Yeah, and exactly. And walruses are great. Who doesn't love a walrus? Everyone loves a walrus. Cuckoo Chew. Every time anybody ever says cuckoo Chew, all I hear is a cuckoo kacha, a cuckoo kacha. <laughs> which is, this is our best episode yet. Yep. Yep. All right. But what we see in Slytherin is that there's not a necessary marriage between hunger for power and this, you know, subtextually white supremacist mm -hmm. disgust with muggles. Because Slughorn does not give a goddamn if you are muggle-born or not. Uh, he is only interested in your skill. And that dimension, I think, while it's sort of played primarily for humor in the book so far, is a really good reminder for us that the Slytherins you know, despite what Harry's perspective would have us believe that the Slytherins are not these inherently mm -hmm. evil characters, that there's in fact plenty of room within Slytherin for different versions of what ambition looks like. Yes. You know what? He doesn't seem to be that bad a teacher either. No, no, not at all. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't uh, verbally abuse his students the way that other potions masters who we have gotten to know have yeah. done. Yeah, and he really celebrates the successes of his students. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, he's so excited for Hermione when she does great. He's like, you're super smart. Have a bunch of points. And he distinctly remembers the thing that Harry says about this person that he's never met before, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The way that he consistently ignores Ron is really shitty. It's really <laughs> shitty. It's funny, but it's also really shitty. Like, going back to that sort of the power that you have as a teacher and the ways that your attention or lack of attention can validate or invalidate students' experiences, you are not allowed as a teacher to only teach the top handful of students in your class and fundamentally ignore everybody else. That, my friends, is bad pedagogy. But you know what I really like about the fact that he ignores Ron is that he ignores Ron in the same way that he ignores Malfoy, right? Because Malfoy is like, hey, I'm important. I think that you know this person that I'm related to. I'm important. And Slughorn is like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and Not then even Slughorn's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's I imagine the noise that Slughorn makes when yeah. he walks. Yeah. Good. Let's talk about Dumbledore. Or do no, let's talk about Hagrid. We'll end on Dumbledore. I really wanted to acknowledge the fact that. Hagrid's hurt that Ron, Hermione, and Harry have stopped taking his class and the way that it manifests in his like surliness and sullenness. sullenness and sulkiness, that that is behavior that I've seen from actual real live flesh and blood professors whose feelings have been hurt by decisions that I have made about what I was going to study or who I was going to work with or uh -huh. who I wanted reference letters from or who I got to overlook 
an application for a grant. And I thought that it was a really sweet reminder that professors are also people and that professors' feelings and emotions, which are totally human, are completely fucking inappropriate when you are teaching. So keep your tears for the bathtub where they belong. Cry into a cat. The only appropriate way to do it. Uh, All right. So we're going to conclude this section by talking a little bit about Dumbledore as a teacher, because as Marcel was pointing out, this is the first book where we really get to see Dumbledore actually being a professor, right? Mm -hmm. And he sort of stepped into this role at the end of book five, where he finally said, like, I'm going to talk to you now, Harry. I'm actually going to tell you something about what's been going on. And this book opens from Harry's perspective with the promise of these lessons from Dumbledore. And it's sort of this revelatory promise, right? At last, Harry will get to learn from really the one teacher he's desperately wanted to learn from Mm -hmm. the whole time. Dumbledore is at last going to take him under his wing and give him these special, unique lessons. And we get at last a view of how Dumbledore teaches. Which is bonkers. Which is bonkers. I mean, obviously as a method, right? Not since Lupin have we seen so clearly articulated a pedagogical method. But unlike Lupin's method, which is like really transparent, Dumbledore's method is like Mm -hmm. obfuscation, pedagogy through obfuscation. Mm -hmm. It's best if you don't understand anything that you're learning as you learn it. Yeah, I'd like to add a side note that all of the assumptions that Dumbledore is actually a Gryffindor, I think are nonsense, because nowhere have we seen a pedagogical method more like Horace Slughorn's than Dumbledore, right? Like he just weaves a big web where he is at the center and knows what's going on. And everybody around it is just like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm being manipulated by this person who's happy to stand in the background. Dumbledore is totally a Slytherin. We can talk about this later. I think it might be a Hufflepuff. Ooh, I'm willing to hear that. Okay, so the way that I interpret Dumbledore's teaching of Harry in this book is so much like an RA ship. When you become a research assistant to a professor, you are not a student in the same way that you are a student in the class. You are tasked with assisting that professor in a type of research that goes beyond the classroom. And it is something that you are hired to do because you are particularly qualified, right? And so this is definitely what we see with Harry working with Dumbledore. But one of my favorite things about the way that this is described in the book is their first mission together where Dumbledore brings Harry along to get Horace Leghorn to come back to school. Way, way before this, just when they're leaving Privet Drive, Uh, The book tells us that Harry felt distinctly awkward because he had never had a proper conversation with his headmaster outside Hogwarts before. There's usually a desk between them. And let me tell you, if you've never been a research assistant before, this is 100% what it is like to become a research assistant because they're like, oh, call me Joe. And you're like, nope, nope, nope. You do not have a first name. I will only call you by your last name, Joe Dumbledore. I don't even know why you would suggest that I call you Joe. (laughs) But this is totally what's happening in this encounter, right? Like all of a sudden, Harry is working one-on-one with this professor and it's not at all like being in a classroom. And we see like both Ron and Hermione are speculating all the types of lessons that they think that Harry is going to learn. And nothing of the sort takes place in his private lessons with Dumbledore. It's all all like archival research, basically. Well, and that's the really interesting thing is that 
all of the other models of pedagogy that we've looked at have been examples of people who are specialists in particular fields attempting to impart a simplified version of those fields to young learners. We are seeing something really, really different happening in Dumbledore's Lessons with Harry, which is to say that Dumbledore is working with Harry to discover things that he does not already know, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what is exciting about the learning experience of being a research assistant, Mm -hmm. is that you're actually working with somebody who's a really high level thinker and researcher, watching how they do their work Mm -hmm. and learning how to do your own work through modeling it off them. So it's a really different experience of learning. Mm -hmm. And it involves a lot more sort of comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty and unknowing, um, which ends up being really, really central to what is involved in being an academic. You know, what makes Dumbledore's lessons so unsatisfying to Harry ends up being because Dumbledore doesn't know the answers. And so Dumbledore is sort of going on this quest of trying to figure something out. And he he has a hypothesis, which he is choosing not to share so far. He doesn't want to get scooped. He doesn't want to get scooped. He doesn't want his Harry to present at a conference before he can. Yeah, but there is there's a very different kind of teaching happening here. We can probably talk about that more when we find out what's actually going on in yeah. the second half. Okay, it's time to get serious about 2016, and I don't mean serious black. I declare this year the year of radically subverting social norms. Let's begin by entering the Forbidden Forest and talking about race and bodies and power. All right, I want to start with just a note about uh, Blaise Zabini. Mm-hmm. When I argued in an earlier episode that Slytherin appeared to be a pretty white supremacist oriented school at Hogwarts, um, Everybody tweeted at me like, Blaze Zabini, there's totally a black Slytherin. And I couldn't remember who that was at all. So I was just like, cool, whatever you guys say, I will encounter him when I get to him in the books. And then it ended up being very much like everybody saying, there's a Jew, Anthony Goldstein. (laughs) This is what the saying, the exception proves the rule means, Mm -hmm. which is when an exception is so very exceptional and stands out so entirely as different from the norm, it actually reinforces how well established the norm is. So we've got this one black Slytherin and his only character trait is blackness. That's it. That's all he is. What we know about him is that he is dark-skinned and has slanted eyes and that he is tall and beautiful like his famous beautiful black mother. Mm -hmm. And the way in which his blackness is uh, fetishized and eroticized and feminized is this thing that makes him stand out as this character who is like, hey, look at this, a black Slytherin. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's it. He's got nothing else, right? He's famous because his mother is famous and his mother is famous because she's beautiful, but she's beautiful in a very particular racialized, orientalized way. Mm -hmm. And so my point is that Blaise Zabini absolutely does not undermine my thesis about the white supremacy of the Slytherins. Oh, totally. And the way that he just keeps like popping up, leaning against things (laughs) is just further evidence that he was added in as an afterthought. Like, oh, we should probably have a black Slytherin. So look, no, he's been here the whole time. He's always been there leaning against things. You just never noticed him. Because you're racist, (laughs) reader. Again, it is possible 
Like, Harry's such a shitty narrator. Yeah. It's always possible that, like, Blaise Sabini has been there the entire time. Leaning against things. <laughs> Leaning against things. Just having slanted eyes. Hmm. So similarly, people are always like, no, Dumbledore's gay. There's a gay character. Dumbledore, he's gay. Rowling said so. It's canon. Cool. And we have maintained throughout this podcast, there's no textual evidence for this queerness whatsoever, unlike the textual evidence for lots of queerness that does not get identified by Rowling as queerness. I have found some evidence to Dumbledore's queerness, and it is literally the only evidence in the entire series. I know some of you disagree with me, and that's okay. Maybe there will be evidence in book seven. Oh, shoot. Don't right. jump the shark. You're right. No, I didn't... wait, that's not what that saying means. Don't jump the gun. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> don't jump a thing don't that jump. kills people. Don't jump. So I, I have found some evidence, and it is, and I quote, Dumbledore's flamboyantly cut suit of plum velvet in his memory when he first goes to visit Tom Riddle in the yeah. orphanage. That is the only evidence of Dumbledore's queerness. It is his sense of style. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's all. That's it. And really, it's just the word flamboyantly. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. It's just the choice of the word flamboyantly. Yeah. Um, because, you know, a suit of plum velvet is not necessarily... Uh, considering how wizards dress when they go out into the muggle world? No. No. Okay, no, fair enough. A frock coat and a one-piece Victorian bathing costume? <laughs> I love wizards so wizards much. Wizards are the best. All right, we're going to keep this section short because Granger Danger is going to be long. So the last thing I want to talk about in this section is I just want to address... The treatment of the Gaunts, right? So this is uh, the first memory that Dumbledore takes Harry into our encounter with Voldemort's grandfather and uncle and mother, Mm -hmm. the Gaunts, who are one of the last purebred families, but their pure breeding in this scene is very clearly linked to inbreeding, Mm -hmm. right? There is this way in which it is, it is, being subtextually fed to us that the reason why the Gaunts have stayed purebred for so long is because they are marrying their cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this this really sinister undertone of abuse between the two male characters towards um, either Merope or Mer- Merope. We are going with Merope because it's uglier sounding. Yeah. And any any listener who's like, no, this is a name and it's pronounced a different way, please let us know. Spell it phonetically for us. I mean, it is a name and it's pronounced in different ways in different contexts. My my understanding, like, it would be Merope, um, if this was Greece, but it's England and they pronounce everything funny. Sorry, English listeners, you do. Sinjin? Sinjin? Jaquies? Jaquies. Anyway, so Merope is what I'm sticking with. Yeah, there's this sort of violence directed towards her and her sort of desperation to escape this family, which suggests to me a sort of, you know, violent family dynamic that Mm -hmm. I think is not at all at odds with um, incest. Mm -hmm. uh, And that would sort of tie into the way that their pure breeding is linked to the image of her brother as not quite right Mm -hmm. in some way you know, threads of of madness and instability that are all being sort of gestured towards in those scenes. And that was, for me, a really unexpected background to be introduced to 
with Voldemort, mm-hmm. right? Because that complicates the whole idea of the purebred wizard in all of these different ways. You know, it sort of implies that had Voldemort been a product of the ongoing purebredness, he probably would have been as messed up and inbred as his relatives, right? Mm-hmm. It's like how mutts are healthier than purebred dogs, yeah. right? It's like by virtue of his mother escaping this really messed up household dynamic, that is the way in which Voldemort becomes mm-hmm. who he is. And that does some interesting, complicated things with the whole narratives of of purebredness and, and muggle-bornness that are happening in the novels. Yeah, but I'm realizing right now that in escaping her violent, incestuous family, she jumps into another family that is equally, like, hateful and violent, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the way in which we learn that Tom Riddle abandons her and does not care that she's pregnant with his child and does not, like, ever go back to retrieve the child, I think suggests that Voldemort is the product of viciousness and hatred on both sides, right? So it's not... It's not even that the muggle side tempers that in any way. It's that it it amplifies it in a certain way, although it is what makes him handsome. Yeah. yeah. So we learn that. Well, handsome once. Now, noseless and snake-faced. Yeah, and it's the sort of conjunction between the riddles and the gaunts, right? Whereas the riddles are, from the perspective of the wizarding world, sort of biologically impure, but wealthy. They're high class. Whereas the gaunts are this poor, but racially pure family and so it's the sort of the clash between discourses of class value and discourses of racial value Mm -hmm. and the ways in which both of those discourses are rooted in hatred and violence Mm -hmm. and that when sort of smashed up against each other they produce a genocidal maniac right and again this becomes oh this is so interesting really we're really picking up this through line about the way that this book is actually about how systems of violence and abuse reproduce themselves mm-hmm. over and over again, right? Snape yeah. is a product of violence. Harry is a product of violence. Voldemort is a product of violence. Like, these are all characters who have been abused so profoundly. Mm-hmm. And even Harry, our hero, we see him perpetuating these forms of abuse in lots of different ways. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Man, guys, violence is the worst. Let's talk about it some more. But wait. Do, 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 You know what? Fine. If you declare 2016 the year of radically subverting social norms, then I'm declaring 2016 the year of just completely destroying the patriarchy. Granger danger! Pretty sure Granger danger is the only reason why 90% of our listeners listen. Yeah, guys, you made it through through us waxing histrionic about print culture for half an hour. Your reward is this. Remember when you asked me who was a better feminist, yeah. uh, Mrs. Weasley or Hedwig? And I was like, it's probably Mrs. Weasley. Nope, it's Hedwig. You'll get to it later. Yep. This is the book. This is why. So Ginny, Mrs. Weasley, and Hermione are all complicit in villainizing Fleur Delacour. Uh, and when we were talking about this beforehand, we narrowed it down to the fact that they are extremely derisive towards Fleur's femininity, right? Yep. She, is, she just performs a particular type of womanness that the other three important female characters cannot and will not abide. Yeah. Yeah. And it's based in this, you know, the way that 
uh, living in a patriarchal system encourages misogyny in women and the way that that is represented by, you know, the the pretty girl who just doesn't have any female friends because other women just don't like her. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that like that itself is, you know, that particular woman reproducing the misogyny through which she has established her own value. But it's also often true that women who perform their femininity in really sanctioned ways, right. in ways that are really sanctioned by the patriarchal system, then invite the hatred of other women who are experiencing viscerally their failure to live up to those sanctioned ways, Mm -hmm. right? That because you are experiencing on a daily basis, the ways in which you are undermined as a human for failing to embody socially sanctioned models of femininity, Mm -hmm. you then take that anger and instead of turning it against the patriarchy, which is what you should do, Mm -hmm. you turn it against women who are, thriving under that mm-hmm. system right and it's yeah. just it's the way that living as an oppressed group results in you turning against each other rather than turning against your oppressor just like totally. a whole thing so it's it's super significant that fleur is planning her wedding mm-hmm. when we encounter her at the weasley household right and so she is in the middle of planning this patriarchal event that roots women in a patriarchal system and makes them the property of their husbands and is expressing her agency in the limited ways that women in the patriarchy are allowed to do, which is doing things like picking the color of dresses of the other girls who you are going to rope into that patriarchal event. And all of a sudden, this becomes intolerable to the women around her who are very strong and active. And that competition then gets played out in turn through um, particularly Hermione and Ginny explicitly setting Fleur against Tonks, right? Mm -hmm. Because Fleur represents this like excessive complicity with the system that they dislike, whereas Tonks then becomes the sort of opposing like, oh, well, but Tonks is cool. Mm -hmm. And so therefore Tonks must marry Bill, Mm -hmm. which is like just not how anything works. It's not like, oh, we'll just find somebody who represents something different. I think Ginny actually says I'd prefer Tonks become part of the family twice in one chapter. Yeah. Yeah, it's like because of the way that she's positioned as Fleur's foil, Tonks then becomes the object of Ron's misogyny Mm -hmm. because Ron wants to defend Fleur. Right. But not in a good grounds. Ron, Ron isn't defending Fleur in like a productive, like everybody just back off. Femininity is a beautiful kaleidoscope ron's like i like her i want to fuck her tonks is ugly i don't want to fuck her she must be less valuable as a human ron is gross yeah ron's a real misogynist in this book we'll talk about that more um harry harry steps up at one point and is like well like fleur can't be stupid if she was in the triwizard tournament like you have to be pretty like badass to do that and they're like shut up harry what do you know We've just accused Ron of being a misogynist. And he is in this book. Like, he's just, like, crazy slut-shaming, right? His anger about Ginny kissing boys, right? He almost accuses Ginny of being a slut, except that she cuts him off. And then he's, like, also super freaked out about Hermione having ever kissed anybody. And he's not, like, notice that he doesn't yell at, like, Ginny's just like, oh, it's just because you've never kissed anybody. 
oh, he's not yelling at Harry. Yeah. Like, for having kissed Cho. It's clearly just that he doesn't want women to have sexual agency. And the fact that he then sort of takes his sexual frustration about Hermione out on a character, right, who is constructed as purely a silly, flighty thing, right? Who I'm sure has like a rich internal life as well, but we're given no access to it. Yeah. Um, So all she becomes is like the thing that Ron is making out with mm-hmm. Um, really just perpetuates that. But as you pointed out, there's a lot more serious misogyny happening in this book. <laughs> I've mentioned before in this podcast that this is my favorite book. And I think that there is so much going on with women in particular in this book. Uh, this is the first book where Harry's mother, Lily, like really becomes a fleshed out character. Like in addition to just having the same eyes as Harry. We learn that she's really good at potions. We learn that she's vivacious, that she was the particular favorite of one of her professors. These things are pretty significant because prior to this, all we knew was that she was a Gryffindor. And and she had eyes. And she had eyes and, and they were green. she died for a man. <laughs> she died for her son, which is very touching. <laughs> but there are other things that are going on in this book as well. Right. So in addition to learning about Lily, we also get this incredible scene at the beginning with Narcissa and Bellatrix. We encounter them as sisters. They refer to each other by their nicknames, which to me feels like really strange and weird. But actually, if you are siblings, it's probably completely and totally normal. We also get these two high profile murders that are referenced at the beginning of the book, um, Emmeline Vance and uh, Susan Bones. Um, so the first two high profile. Amelia Bones. Oh, sorry. Amelia Bones. Susan Bones is her niece. Yes. So the first two high profile murders are also women. And then shortly after that, we learn that Hannah Abbott's mother has been murdered. I guess what's happening in the book is that women are all of a sudden really prominent in a way that they just aren't in the other books. And it's not because Harry has suddenly become aware that women exist, Mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden, women are in fact being targeted. And this is probably not coincidentally the book that we learn about Voldemort's mother as well. So I'm really, I guess the thing I'm wondering is... I have accused Voldemort of having a problem with women in the past, and I'm just wondering if this is further evidence of that, Mm. or if this is just what it looks like when female characters get the same representation as male characters. All of a sudden, they die all the time. Yeah. Just curious. I would read this more as a reflecting on the ways that increase in this kinds of structural violence often affect women more strongly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that is obviously not always the case right we can point towards for example the ways in which black masculinity is particularly targeted by systemic violence in the u.s um but i don't think that this is just a sort of oh this is just what things look like when you pay attention to women i think that this is a book that is about mothers Mm -hmm. um and i think that this is a book that is about violence against women and that is about linking violence against women to the role that our mothers play in our lives in some really interesting ways that we'll ha- again we'll have to talk about more in the next mm-hmm. episode when we sort of learn more stuff but i i am convinced by the argument that you were starting to weave together which is that there is a conjunction between how much violence is happening to women in this book and how much this book is interested in motherhood mm-hmm. i don't think that that's a coincidence i think that there's something happening there and i'm also totally convinced by voldemort being a misogynist right mm-hmm. because who do we see like 
we see two female Death Eaters, right? One is Narcissa. I mean, really, it's only Bellatrix, right? Like, is Narcissa even an actual Death Eater? We know that she's married to one and the mother of one, but like... That's a good point. I guess we really just see the one, and she's literally insane oh yeah right and her sort of her relationship to Voldemort is a sort of fanatical and sexualized relationship that he manipulates and rejects at the same time Mm -hmm. and then other than that we don't see Voldemort engage with women in any way we right we see his sort of like profoundly abusive relationship to Ginny Mm -hmm. we know that he hates his mother he assumes that his mother can't be a witch because she's dead he like presumes that his mother who died giving birth to him must be too weak to be a magical person yeah yeah so i am convinced by that voldemort has a problem with women what yeah what i'm interested to sort of pay attention to in the second half of the book is the way that that gets played out as being something that is rooted that our sort of our aggression towards or love for women might be rooted in this sort of maternal relationship Mm -hmm. god we're gonna get real freudian up in this piece Marcel loves Freudian relationships. Marcel loves to really just tease out the weird Freudian dimensions of a mother's relationship to her son. That's like her jam. The last thing that I want to mention, you know, we've talked about Hermione mostly in passing in this particular section because we've been looking at some of the the bigger structural issues that Hermione sort of engaged in and i just want to point out one just one really key scene again both marcel and i in our separate readings were like what the ever-loving fuck is going on right here (laughs) um and it's the scene so hermione is obviously you know has a a bone for ron like they're obviously super into each other and don't know how to figure that or or express that and that's fine that happens even to adults so they're kids they're working it out you know, and the the way that both of them lash out is by seeking out inferior partners to make the other jealous. Mm-hmm. So we see Ron making out with Lavender Brown and her just being fatuous and like an accessory. And Hermione chooses to make Ron jealous by going to Slughorn's Christmas party with Cormac... McClagan. McClagan. I was like, Cormac McCarthy? No, that's not it. He's a total downer. Who would have thought? Cormac McClagan, who proceeds to sexually assault her in a way that the story treats as funny. Uh, Right? So Harry runs across Hermione and she looks like she's just been attacked by whatever that plant is. Venomous tentacular? Sure. I don't know. I just made it up. And he's like, what's up? And she's like, oh, Cormac. God, he caught me under some mistletoe. And then she's like, oh, no, he's coming now. Cover for me. It's like, ah, that's not cool. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. That's not funny. When somebody, anybody, regardless of gender, touches you in an aggressive way without your consent, that's not funny. Also, there's a, a line in the book Harry about it already because it was too upsetting. Yeah, you have to repress it because it's horrible. And so I think most people probably read it and then forgot about it immediately because it's the most horrible thing ever. And it's where Hermione actually describes herself as having escaped Cormac. And then Harry says, and I quote, serves you right for coming with him. Um, No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay, so I totally believe you that this is coded as funny. But I wonder if at the same time it's also coded as commonplace and if it somehow fits into the greater narrative of the 
types of violence against women that are just normalized. Mm. So it's possible to read the sexual violence that is being uh, perpetrated against Hermione by Cormac McLegan as being on the same spectrum as the sexual violence that we see enacted or suggested uh, as being enacted uh, towards Merope. So I don't know. I do think it's possible to read it as funny, but I also think it's possible to resist that reading and say that this is all one big spectrum of violence against women. Wow, I can really feel that New Year energy starting to wear off. So uh, let's lower our expectations and roll into final revisions. I'm going to ask the questions and Hannah is going to answer. All right, I'm ready. The first question. So we know that it's possible that Death Eaters are impersonating people. We know that it's possible that people are under the Imperious Curse. And the ministry has recommended that... People use security questions Mm -hmm. to ensure that they are who they are when they encounter other people. You know what I mean. I'm not making any sense, but like, yeah. So, what I want to know, Hannah McGregor, is how do I know that you were Hannah McGregor? Oh, good question. Um, which Canadian literature scholar did we make fun of the first time we met in order to bond? That's a really good question, and I'm not going to answer it because (laughs) this is going on the internet. But now you know. You know that I am me, right? I know know that you are you. It's great. It's a great security question. Good job. Okay. So then my second and more serious question is, uh, what are your thoughts on Harry as a muggle slash muggle-born ally? Oh, that's a good question. I think that at this stage in the series, Harry is theoretically aware of the forms of, again, systemic violence that are visited upon muggles and muggle-borns. And when he sees one of those forms of violence being directly visited upon somebody he really cares about, he steps in. But I do think that that understanding is purely theoretical for him in a way that he hasn't really internalized or built into his behavior in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So that we see that it's not really affecting um, the way that he treats muggles. Mm-hmm. It's not something that he notes one way or the other about a lot of other characters. Um, when you are somebody who is a meaningful ally, you are thinking, you are attempting to think about the ways in which those forms of oppression are operating in people's lives on a regular basis right it's being a good ally is like the opposite of being like race blind or gender blind Mm -hmm. right you say like oh i don't see race it's like you are the shittiest ally right and so i think from what we get of harry which is his narrative perspective i think how little he thinks about what it means to be muggle-born how it never comes up except in those moments when we see it actively being used as a vicious slur against Hermione Mm -hmm. is a suggestion to us that he hasn't really thought through what it means in the wizarding world to be muggle-born. Great. That's a great answer. Thanks. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. 
Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 11A of Which Please. Sometimes I get confused by our numbering system. Only sometimes. It's very clear. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca or subscribe to us on whatever podcasting platform you enjoy using. We have a few new reviews on iTunes from Janie Canuck, uh, Jesse Sane, Perry Otter, Brie Grace, and Teacher Librarian. And they're all either completely lovely and kind or totally inexplicable, (laughs) proving once again that you are all the very, very best. Speaking of people who are the very, very best, a special shout out to listener Jazz Confuses People who sent us an incredible care package containing some lovely New Zealand chocolate. I'm still working my way through the half that I got of the package. Uh, A gorgeous cross stitch that Hannah completely stole and a really, really beautiful and thoughtful note. You are unbelievably kind. Special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Our erstwhile tech support. He might now start to become our erstwhile baby support. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the robot of our hearts. And also to the following dope-ass people who have been tweeting about us. Jordan Ruth, Mother Fungus, Alicia B., Just Malins, Turquoise Mind, V. Neil Politan, Amanda Crumans, Kristen Morin, Ifia S., Anne Fine, F.K. Pagan, Noah Potter, Andrew Bretz, Trevor Chow Fraser, Another Great Etc., J.V. Purcell, Debbie Kinsey, My Book Jacket, Emily Hoven, Karina Soros, Broken Tape Deck, Caveats Decorum, Whiteley Rose, DeBeckle, Catcher on Rye, Chrissy Pajamas, Edmonton Orrors, Peacock Envy, M.W. Boyce, who P.S. sent us a message saying that if we're ever in his town, he will buy us a drink. <gasps> Sophie Biblio, Guts Magazine, Nord C. Blau, Ms. Laura Lipstick, Mara Dithering, Collectro, Pewterwolf13, Ms. Megan, Katarina Hoven, Alan Matley, Nemals Winter, Janie Canuck, Seen and Heard Yeg, Alohomora MN, Redicopter, Terry Lee McGarry, A.L. Loveday, Intesisa, Virginia Woof, Dear Alina, Matt Domville, Tambourine, Lisa or Melissa, N. Wilkins, Ontario, Holly Dunn Design, Savannah Goyette, Aaron Emily Ann, Soy Milk Cinema, Brandon Rambles, AMS Blair or Ams Blair, hmm. Stephanie Nicole, K Maloche 2, Matt L.A. Schneider, Physics Katie, Uterps Delight, and Red or MC1R. Here's wishing you all a 2016 full of magic and righteous feminist anger. We have an exciting live event coming up in the form of Nerd Night Edmonton, which we will do our best to release as a minisode. Stay tuned for the second half of our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and for who even knows what else. But until then... Later, witches!
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.